0: Okay, so uh, today is um, the first Sunday of Advent, and I said this last year, but I think it's worth repeating again, Advent literally means the coming or the arrival of something, um, some event, or some person that is very important. Okay, so it's got to be a really big deal for it to, to wear the label Advent, and so Historically, it's been reserved for certain ages of mankind, like, you know, the Renaissance Age or, you know, you could say maybe the the Pope's first visit to the U.S., something like that. But in, in Jesus Christ, who came to set us free by the cross, to set us free from sin and death, darkness, condemnation, and hell, and to bring us eternal, abundant life. Folks, what we've got in Jesus Christ is the biggest, greatest Advent ever. I mean, you've got an Advent that so outshines all the other Advents. It's like, you know, they all just immediately go to like lowercase, right? Because of Jesus. He's that big a deal. And I think for that reason, um, when, uh, t- we don't really use the word for anything else anymore other than Jesus Christ. I mean, even people outside the church, you know, if they hear the word Advent, they have one of two reactions. Um, Either, well, what is that? Or they think of Christmas. They think of Christ. That's just how big a deal Jesus is, right? Amen. Good. You and me, we're together. So, for Advent, okay, in case you're an Advent newbie, there are four themes to Advent. I mentioned them a moment ago, Um, hope, uh, peace, joy, and love, and if you if you join us for the season each week what we do is we take one of those themes and we focus on it um, we, man, we stretch it out. We try and just squeeze everything we can out of the Word. And then what happens on Christmas Eve is the high point of Advent is when we light that center candle, which is, it, you know, it represents the night of Jesus' birth. And we just focus on Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the Son of God. And so for that reason, I mean, to all those reasons, Advent is just a really big deal around here. So you know where we're going. So let's get started. Today, we're going to talk about hope. I noticed there wasn't a wild crowd reaction when I said the word hope. Here's why, okay? Yeah, thanks. It's a little late. Uh, And, And here's the reason. Hope is one of those words in our English language, it doesn't have a lot of punch anymore, you know? It's kind of like the word nice or good or kind of like the word fun. It's just... You know, it it might have been something big and powerful at some point in history, but you know, hope has just turned into this kind of seemingly sweet, mild little word. So today, I want to recall hope, okay? I want to put it up in the front, and I'm going to go ahead and say this. Hope is one of those things for human beings that it can actually ruin your life, or it can actually be a part of restoring your life depending on something that's how big a deal hope is okay so we're gonna pull, we're gonna reel this thing back in today and it is dependent on something and we're going to get to the something in just a few minutes so let's start off simply let's get the ball rolling on hope okay let's go ahead and define this word now In defining hope, I could do a whole lot of things, all right? Um, I could lead you into a semantic swampland of definition, all right? I actually heard a guy do this one time. He preached about hope, and about halfway through, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so bored and so wrung out with you trying to explain what hope is. So today, we're going to go simple. I can define it in one word, and this is a biblical definition. Hope is synonymous with expectation. Expectation is what we long for, okay? Expectation speaks to deep desire. Expectation is what we set our hearts on, all right? You talk about expectation, it is the belief that something is gonna happen, hopefully, near future, not late, uh, you know, distant future, but something's gonna happen. In, in, in the near future, that's going to improve things, okay? Or somebody's going to come along before too long that is going to make a difference in our lives, my life, and, and, and things are going to change. The sun is going to come out. You know, tomorrow it will. Let this show up or let that person show up. And we all do this, right? We all hope for something. We all expect for something to come. And sometimes in our life, what we hope for, what we expect, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. When I was 18 years old, okay, I remember this and you'll see why in a minute, but when I was 18 years old, I had three things as a young adult that I, I, I just, man, I had, my, I had my heart set on, okay? Really hope for these things. And I'll tell you what they were. Very noble things, by the way, okay? Actually, two of them weren't and one of them was. I hope for, number one, a car, all right? Really, oh! I need a car. I want a car. I expect one. I hope for it. Uh, A guitar. That was the other thing. And then the third one was really, really noble. Okay, I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. It's known as to blave. Anybody know what that is? To blave. Does that help? True love, right? Princess Bride. Come on. I wanted true love. All right. I wanted a car. I wanted a guitar and I wanted a girl and y'all, I wanted them bad, all right? If only I could have these three things, right? I'd be set. And so my prayer was, oh Father, would you grant these desires of my heart which you promised to do, by the way, in Psalm 24. You know, you said you'd do this. God, if you would do, you know, hold God to his word, right? So, God, if you would just do this, Lord, I'd be so grateful. Lord, my life, I won't need another thing ever. And I'll just, I'll sing everything is awesome to you all day long, every day. And so, here's what happened. God, in his wisdom and probably in his humor, he actually granted me all three of those things. Now, the reason why I remember those desires is because I learned three valuable lessons. Okay, so I got the gifts, but the gifts came came with lessons that I I never forget. And uh, I'll tell you what they were. Um, With the car, I discovered something that, I mean, man, it it just kinda undid all the joy. I discovered when I got the car that cars cost money. I I was like, man, what a letdown, you know? I mean, even take the car payment away, the gas, the oil, the tires, this thing is a money pit. So I discovered that. Then I discovered something even worse with the guitar and y'all, this broke my heart. I discovered when I got the guitar, guitars don't play themselves, okay? Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, you know, I get the guitar and I would just be like Phil Keggy or James Taylor and it didn't happen. You know, you got to have talent to actually play the thing. And, you know, God just didn't fill me out with that. So, I discovered that. And then I discovered another thing with the girl, okay? Now, first of all, the girl was much better. Let me just say that, all right? In fact, I still have the girl, all right? And I know what half of y'all are thinking. You think you got the girl, buddy? She's got you. That's exactly right, Okay. The girl's got me, and I'll tell you this, I love her. I love her more now than I ever did. But I discovered something, I discovered something about the girl, okay? And listen, if you, if you are thinking about relationship, all right, you're not in relationship, um, you know, you're, you're praying for two blades in your life, you know, you're praying for that, let me just tell you something about the girl. The girl did not fill every empty place in my life. I discovered that, you know, the girl was not the answer for everything that was wrong. The girl did not solve all my problems. So what I found out was that Jerry Maguire lied to everybody when he looked at the girl in the movie and he goes, you complete me, that's garbage. It doesn't work like that, okay? One flesh takes a lot of work, you know, we got to grow through stuff. I I mean, moving towards someone like this is, it takes a lifetime. But see, here's the reason why the girl didn't meet all my needs. Because there's only one person who can meet our needs, all right? There's there's only one. There's only one that fills our lives and fulfills our destiny. The one who made us is the only one who can satisfy us. He's the only one who can sustain us. I reread Proverbs 13, 12 this week. I I love this little proverb, but it says this. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick And I read that, and of course, there's the obvious meaning that, you know, when we hope for something and the hope is delayed, you know, it's a hassle, it's a pain. I I think we see that in the children of Israel in the Old Testament. But I tell you, I'm going to stretch it a little bit and say this. I, I, I believe that proverb also applies to the fact that when we pin our hopes on other things and other people, and we expect them to be what God is, we get disappointed. We do get heartsick. Because the truth of it is, stuff, you know, cars, guitars, the perfect job, people, um, the girl, our children, um, hey, I'll say this in a political year almost, politicians, they can never save us or satisfy us. You know why why they don't? Because they can't. They can't. There's no possible way. God is the only one in whom we can hope. He's the only one in whom we can truly expect. And the reason for that is he is the only one who loves us like this, the cross. He's the only one with the power to take what's wrong with us and take what's missing and and make it right. He's the only one who can meet our expectations. And yet the truth is, if we are honest, and I would submit to you today, it's a good idea to be honest in church, okay? I mean, it's good to be honest here. But, you know, you know, the truth is, quite often, God can be, He can be the very last one in whom we, we place our hopes. We read the, uh, 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 Carolyn read the, the Advent Scripture today out of Isaiah. This is actually one of the themes of Isaiah. Isaiah has two main themes for the first 39 chapters, and, and one of them is, is all about hope. From day one, okay, and I mean go all the way back to Genesis, but follow the trail through the Old Testament for a theme, and you find God saying something to us, to his people. What you find God saying all the way up to Isaiah is, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will make you live, I will bring you to life, I will make you thrive. We, we have this promise everywhere in Scripture, right? Right? But when we get to the book of Isaiah, you look at these people and it is a, it's a train wreck. You know, you, you discover the children of God at the opening of Isaiah and they're lonely, they're, they're confused, they're destitute, they've been ravaged by Assyria. And y'all, Assyria, I know that doesn't draw many, oh, it's today, but y'all, Assyria was, they were bad news back in that day. They have been ravaged by Assyria. They have been ravaged by sin. And they've been ravaged by idol worship. So you've got... All of these promises, and you've got God's people. And it's like, how did you get from from this, these promises, to that? What happened to you? How did you lose it all? How do people living under such amazing promises wind up like this? Here's a cliff note version. You know how the people of God wind up so destitute? Is that here they have these promises, but when God doesn't do it the way they think he should... And when he thinks he, 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 he they, 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 uh, when they think he should, they turn away from him. They turn away from him to other things and other people. In other words, they take their hope, right? Hope's supposed to be pinned on God. Well, they kind of start taking their hope back, and they just start scattering it around. You know, this nation will save us. This king will save us. You know, well, maybe we'll go out and save ourselves. These gods will do it. They just take their hope, and they spread it all around. And so, what you have when you get to Isaiah 1 through 39 is Isaiah is basically confronting them on their sin. And... The chapters in Isaiah aren't that short, but the fact that I said there were 39 of them, what is Isaiah doing? Man, he, he is hitting them, hitting them on their sin. He's reloading them. He, uh, reloading. He's doing it again and again and again. I mean, this is one gigantic confrontation. And what Isaiah says to the people of God is, look, you guys have rebelled against God. You have forsaken God. You have turned your backs on God over and over again. You have become a people, and this is harsh, but it's going to get harsher, and then it'll get better, okay? <laughs> You've become a people of ignorance. You have become a people of evil. You are a people now who are corrupt. That's what it's like with you. And, and, and that describes the inner state, but uh, not the inner state like you Oh, you got it, okay. That, that describes the, inter, the inner state of your hearts, but even on the outside. He says your whole head is afflicted. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your feet to the top of your head, there is no soundness in you. There is no wholeness. And and I got the point the first time I read it, but then Isaiah goes ahead and describes it a little better. There are only wounds, welts, and open sores. So if you just lost your appetite, okay, join me for lunch today. But he describes it. And then in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, spiritually, God's people, you are like, you're like prostitutes. And I know some people are going, oh my gosh, did the pastor, did he really say that? Did he say the word uh, uh, prostitutes on Sunday in church, on Advent, right after the offering and after all that worship? Remember, it was a direct quote, but this is what Isaiah says. He calls them prostitutes spiritually. And again, over and over and over, Isaiah just hits them with this. And then he asks a question a few times along the way. The question he asks is, all right, this is your sin. Now, you answer the question, what has your misplaced hope gotten you? Taking your hope off of God, spreading it all around, what has it gotten you? It's gotten you foreign domination, it's gotten you exile, and it's got the life squeezed right out of you. And if you're sitting here right now going, man, this is a miserable time to live in. This is a miserable situation for the people of God. I believe we feel it. We feel this as we hear it. But I'll tell you one reason why we feel it, because this is us. This is you, this is me. This is the human condition. We can't look at the people at this time and go, man, you know what? Those folks really had some issues. Y'all, this is our issue. We do the same thing all the time. We look to other people. We look to other things to be only what God can be for us. And it is heartbreaking, and it is heavy. And so, Isaiah 1 through 39, it is a tough read. Not just because we feel bad for these guys, but, you know, it it, it hurts when we look at our situation. And so, here we are, and, you know, it's kind of bleak, and it's… Destitute and it's downcast, and we walk through these first 39 chapters, and we're ready to go pick another book to read because, man, this one is just not warm in the heart. But then an amazing thing happens. 1 through 39, we're walking down this dark passage, and we turn the corner into chapter 40, and suddenly the sun does come out. In chapter 40, we find God in his heart. I mean, just, 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 just the, the feel of this is, okay, Isaiah, we've rolled out the sin. The people have gotten it. They can't miss the point after all of this. Let's end this. Now, Forty one and 2. Isaiah, comfort. Now comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Tell her that her sin has been paid for and that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so, after all of this bleakness and misery, here comes God in chapter 40, and he throws words out, right? He throws words out that are completely out of place. The people of God are guilty. He's got them dead to rights. No one deserves a thing from the hand of God, but still in chapter 40, God stands before them. He tears his heart open, and what spills out over the people of God? Tenderness mercy, compassion, kindness. Did I say forgiveness? If I said it once, it's worth saying again. God just hits them with all of this. And what God is doing here in chapter 40 is he's inviting the people. He's saying to them, look, gather up all of your misplaced hope. Hope that you have scattered everywhere. Gather it all up and pin it back on me. Pin it back on me so I can give you fullness of life, so I can bring you salvation. Put your hope in me and disappointment ends. Shame ends. Everything that's been coming your way, wrath of God stuff, it it dries up. Receive from God's hand life today. And if you have ever read Isaiah uh, before, you really weren't that surprised in chapter 40. You know, because there are two themes in Isaiah 1 through 39. One of them is the people's sins. But there's also this other little storyline that keeps sticking its head up. In fact, if, if you take chapters six through nine, it sticks its head up, uh, it hits its, it sticks its head up 16 times. And it's this: even though Israel has been a spiritually spoiled brat on steroids, right? And, and, and sugar-filled cereal, you know I mean? They're just, they're, they're a train wreck of a people. God will not let his people ruin themselves. He will not let them destroy themselves. So the point here is, here is your sin. It is a tsunami, okay? It is Mount Everest of sin. But you know what? That sin is not enough to overcome my salvation and my love for you. Even Assyria, right? Assyria is gigantic, right? I mean, they're, they're, a, they're a massive army in Israel. You know, they're weak and puny. And Assyria is not big enough to stop the goodness and the love of God. You can't do it. The point all the way through Isaiah is, yeah, you are all this, but guess what? I'm all that. I am sending a Savior to rescue you. And it's going to be like this when he comes, straight from the advent wreath. You people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This will come to pass on those living In the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And and again, don't miss the point. They created the darkness, all right? They did it, but it doesn't matter. It will not stop God. There is a Savior coming, and he is the one and only, and he will change everything. Put your hope in him, people of God, even now. That's the message. He's gonna rescue. He's gonna restore. Everyone who dares to put their hope in him, anyone who, who dares to call him Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Lord and Savior, light is coming. Light is coming. Those lost are going to be found. There's a story in the New Testament, I think, that captures this beautifully. Um, it is, it's a parable, okay? What's a parable? A parable is when Jesus used earthly uh, symbols and references to people to point to heavenly truths. I would argue this morning, and I, and I won't argue because that's not polite, but I would just say today that this is one of the two greatest parables in the New Testament. Uh, the other one is, is the Good Samaritan. Um, the other one is this one in Luke 15, and um, it is a story uh, about a young man. We are introduced in verse 11 to a young man, I don't know what his name is, Um, apparently it must be prodigal, right? That's what we always call him. But a young man who grows up and he has got every advantage imaginable, okay? Materially and emotionally, this kid's set. In other words, this kid is a lot like the people of God. Starts off with the promises, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'm gonna make you live, I'm gonna allow you to thrive, but this man grows up and, and on one hand, he's got a great home he's growing up in. I mean, it's, it, it's an estate. You know, there, there are fields, there's great wealth. Um, you know, he, he's kind of got all he needs is a great inheritance coming his way. The kid is set, materially speaking. But emotionally, we see that he starts off with a great home life. He has got a great father. This father is loving, he's wise. He's compassionate and he's generous. But this kid, this boy, appreciates none of it. He appreciates none of his advantages. He's like Veruca, right? In Willy Wonka. Oh, Daddy, I want a golden goose and I want it now. That's what he's like. You know, or he's he's like Sally and Charlie Brown. That's pretty good, Veruca, isn't it? Um, I can do her father too. All right, Wonka, how much for the golden goose? We'll leave that. But he's like Veruca. He's also like little Sally Brown in Charlie Brown Christmas, when when uh, she's getting Charlie Brown to write her note to Santa, and she's and, and so she lays all this stuff out, and Charlie's like, "Dag on, Sally, you kind of want a lot." And she just goes, "All I want is what's coming to me. All I want is my fair share." That's this kid. He he expects his stuff now. He's going to have it now. He wants what he wants. He puts his hope in what he can get his hands on. He gets a hold of it. And then he turns away from home. But the truth is he's not turning away from home. Not really. He's turning away from his father. You can't miss it. He is turning his back on his father. So the kid goes out and he embraces the world. And when I say he embraces the world, you can go as carnal and as secular as you want to, all right? This kid, he, he blows all of his money. He spends it on anything that will fill his senses. And he squanders everything. It's a pretty good inheritance. I mean, this kid blows it all. And what happens to him is that he ends up ravaged. He's completely ravaged. I mean, he loses his friends. He loses his money. And and, and, and the the, the real marker of being ravaged is he ends up feeding pigs, all right? I lived in the country. Jane and I lived in the country for like five years. Y'all… You might love pigs. You might have a pot belly. That's great. These are the smelliest creatures. Man, I can get near a hog farm right now and I can say, man, I will take a paper plant over a hog farm any day of the week. It's horrible. Get behind one of the trucks and just, oh my gosh, it'll curl your hair, straighten it out and make it all fall out. It's terrible. This kid, this kid's feeding pigs and these aren't his pigs. And and, and scripture tells us that he is so hungry himself that he longs, his, his hope now is just to fill his stomach with, with the swill that's going in the trough. And there is, let me tell you, I'm gonna straighten out somebody's theology, all right? Quite often at this point in the sermon, a pastor will say, and so he began to fill his stomach. You know, he began to eat. Y'all, that's not biblical. You know why? He longed to fill his stomach with what the pigs were eating, the pods, but no one would give him anything. You know who no one includes? It includes the pigs, all right? Have y'all ever seen an angry pig? That's the scariest thing in the world. Man, those things will tear you to pieces. So in other words, homeboys looking at the, at the swill, right? He's ready to get you know, pick up a corn husk and those pigs are like, "All right, go ahead and try it." You know, go, go ahead try and get some. You're going to get something else. This this kid can get nothing. Finally, though, the pain of sin hits him. And y'all, that's a beautiful thing in our lives when the pain of sin, sin hits us. Scripture says that he came to his senses. In other words, he realized what he had done. He realized what the wages of sin are, their death. And this kid is dying a very slow death. He comes to his senses and there's only one thing to do. And the one thing is so obvious. We could have told this kid from day one, get back home, he races back home. He tears, I mean, just cartoon noises. I mean, he just screeching rubber. He goes home, and he goes home broken, and he goes home humbled. And listen, brokenness and humility, again, are a gift from God. This kid goes home, and he discovers something in verse 20 as he makes his way home. The house is coming into sight, but he discovers that he's been spotted first. Let me read it to you. Verses 20 through 21, so the young man returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and filled with compassion. The father ran to his son, embraced him, and y'all, this is one of those scoop him up in his arms, swing him around and kiss him, and, and he embraced him and kissed him. His son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. The father was watching for him the whole time. The father, not for a second, had given up on his son. And man, when he shows up, he's there. Verse 22 through 24, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the fatted calf because we're going to celebrate for the son of mine was dead, but he has now returned to life. He was lost but now he is found, and so the party began. And if you were like me and you grew up in the 70s and 80s, there's one thing you think of every time you hear those verses, and it's that Keith Green song. You all know what I'm talking about? But it, it just comes to life here. And, and so in, in this parable, we just have this beautiful story of a father and a son and I would say this whether you are male or female young or old in this story we are the younger son that's the first point we learn this is who we are but we got a Papa and he is a good father and it is God we are talking about God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit he is represented so beautifully by the by by just the Papa in this story this is the story of our lives. This is the setup of Isaiah. These are the promises God has made. This is what this little tiny word hope is all about, this mild little word. And yet, when we take our hope off of God and we spread it around, we experience the Son's fate Hope placed on anything else, on anyone else, it brings two things in our lives. One of two, hopefully not both. I couldn't imagine that. But it always brings one of two things. Hope placed on other things and other people, it either brings a twister of destruction in our lives or it brings a desert of desolation. But when hope is placed on God the Father, and on His Son, Jesus Christ. We end up like the young man at the end of the story. We end up home. We end up free. We end up alive. We end up in the midst of celebration. I might say, well, Steve, why is that? Why Romans 5.5 says it so well. Hope placed in Jesus Christ does not ever disappoint us. It does not ever put us to shame, and that hope will be represented in three and a half weeks when we light that candle in the person, again, of Jesus Christ. So, I end this today, and I can end it simply with just one question, and the question is not just to you or to you or to you guys up top. The question is to me. Here it is. Hope, expectation, your hope, my hope, and my expectation, where is it today? What have we placed our expectations on? What have we placed our hopes in? And I know, listen, if we went around the room, everybody would percentage it a little differently. You know, somebody might say, you know what? Until today, I've never put any of my hope in God before. You might be a zero. But I'll tell you this, even seasoned Christians, right? If we've got any maturity, we probably have to admit, ah, maybe it's a 60 right now. Maybe it's a 70, you know? I'm hoping in God for salvation. I'm hoping, you know, uh... he came that they may have life and life to the full. I've got hope pinned there where it should be. But, you know, financially, I'm looking to myself. We, we all do this in different degrees. We, we spread it around. Today, though, could we, as children of God, could we gather up all of our hopes? Just take a moment and just, just think about, man, where's my hope pinned today? And if they're pinned anywhere else, placed anywhere else, could we gather those up today? And could we just place them right back on God? who never disappoints, who never puts us to shame, who is our salvation, light and life. What do you think? Can we do that? Amen. All right, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the one that we celebrate this season, Lord, in Jesus' name, we don't need you to to come and read 39 chapters of our sin. God, the, the truth of it is that this is the human condition. This is the world we live in. And Father, we all stray, we wander, we roam, Lord, we, we get afraid when we make bad decisions. God, God, we look at something that's shiny and bright, we hear the claims, and Lord, we begin, to tr- we begin to put our trust there instead of in you. Lord, today, in Jesus' name, we just reclaim, we recall, it's go away. it's us who leave home. And so today, we just return to you. We make that heart journey. Every one of us, in some ways, has a heart that's a little bit far away. Today, like this young man, we come home in Jesus' name and we rejoice, we rejoice that our Savior has come. And Lord, this year, God, we we just want to live fully. In every way, we want to live. That a watching and dying world might see, might see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, changes everything. That's our desire as a church in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.